Welcome, Dr. Kushida, to the Breathe Easy podcast series of the American Thoracic Society. We are so grateful that you agreed to take some time out from your schedule to talk with us about sleep and the pandemic. Um, this is a podcast that is actually widely uh, reviewed and downloaded by our extended membership, which is worldwide. And considering the effects of a pandemic that just in this country has taken half a million lives and has had chronic and long lasting effects, we thought that talking with someone of your experience uh, with regard to the long-term effects and the short-term effects of the pandemic on sleep uh, would be useful for our membership. So thank you once again for taking the time to do it. Thank you. So a brief introduction uh, to our membership of Dr. Kushida. Dr. Kushida is a renowned sleep medicine physician. Uh, he is a neurologist who specializes in the diagnosis and management of sleep-related breathing disorders. He is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, the division chief and medical director of Stanford Sleep Medicine and director of the Stanford Center for Human Sleep Research. In addition to his many professional accomplishments, he is the founding president of the World Sleep Society, the past president of the World Sleep Federation, the past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the founding president of the California Sleep Society. He has conducted numerous basic and clinical sleep research studies since 1977 and has served as principal investigator for numerous large federally and industry sponsored studies. He has authored or edited over 200 publications. He has also authored or edited six books, including serving as editor in chief of the largest publication on the field of sleep to date, which is the Encyclopedia of Sleep. In addition, he has mentored and taught and trained generations of sleep medicine physicians at Stanford uh, Sleep Center. So thank you again, Dr. Kushida. I wanted to begin by asking your opinion as, um, as someone who really has a broad overview of the field of sleep and what in what your view has been the most significant impact of the pandemic and its consequences on sleep. I think the, the most significant impact has been, um, it's uh, actually two things. One is uh, stress uh, has really had a burden on, on um, individual sleep. So the stress can be manifested in several ways, but what we tend to see is that uh, their sleep schedules have become somewhat irregular and also the stress has, has manifested in, in uh, short and long-term bouts of insomnia. Uh, secondly, the other significant impact um, that we've noticed is that uh, patients are a little reluctant to seek uh, care for their significant sleep disorders. So even though they suspect that they might have obstructive sleep apnea um, by their bed partners reporting that they have loud disruptive snoring, witness breathing pauses, and daytime sleepiness, as well as other, other uh, secondary symptoms, they have been a little reluctant uh, to come in for um, a, a sleep study, both sometimes an in-lab sleep study, but also some reluctance even for having uh, visits, even though a lot of the um, sleep labs have converted to video visits. So those are probably the two most dramatic impacts that that, um, in my opinion, I've, I've noticed uh, regarding the sleep landscape during the pandemic. 
Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to follow up on the comment that you made about the reluctance of people wanting to come in for indicated sleep studies, even when they're actually symptomatic because of the fact that the pandemic uh, fuels their concern about the fact that they might have an exposure that might result in them uh, getting the coronavirus. Um, I know that there have been concerns that have been expressed by our colleagues in other specialties about patients postponing needed care, whether that is for indicated surgeries or whether that is for other testing and procedures because of their concern and fear that they would pick up the infection in a hospital setting, despite the fact that many hospitals are actually taking extraordinary measures in order to prevent exposure and to allow patients to receive needed care. From your perspective um, as a medical director of, uh, of a thriving uh, sleep lab, uh, an extensive program, do you actually think that this decreased participation uh, by patients in needed sleep studies is likely to linger? And what, if anything, we can do as sleep medicine physicians to address the concerns, I guess the legitimate concerns that our patients have and, and get them back to getting testing done in a timely fashion. Thank you. Um, so in response to the question, um, you, uh, if they have a serious condition like obstructive sleep apnea that has such a heavy association with cardiovascular risk, both in terms of mortality and morbidity, it, it is not something that they'd want to uh, delay. And certainly you sleep laboratories have uh, ramped up to the occasion, meaning that they've um, undergone uh, several protocol changes to make sure that the process is, is safer uh, than uh, perhaps, um, you know, uh, how it might have been before in terms of, of the possibility of, of contracting a, a virus. So there are numerous safeguards in, in place to, to safeguard uh, the patients coming in. So uh, they really um, probably should not delay um, any type of, of, um, of medical care, particularly um, such as obstructive sleep apnea, which you know, can be uh, life-threatening. And I think the message that needs to be conveyed um, um, to these patients is that um, there are these associations, um, the comorbidities associated with conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea that that should be diagnosed and, and treated. And if they're untreated, they can lead to uh, things like increase in motor vehicle accidents, also um, aspects such as uh, decreases in neurocognitive function, meaning that they would have difficulties in their usual uh, um, activities of daily living, such as um, you know, even learning and memory, uh, attention and vigilance, and even the ability to perform higher level functions such as driving. So it is not something to be taken lightly and um, both the sleep lab as well as the uh, clinics are cognizant of that and have increased their safeguards you know, for ensuring, ensuring the safety of patients. But the same token, uh, the patient should not um, or um, individuals should not uh, delay medical care, especially if uh, they suspect that they might have conditions such as obstructive or central sleep apnea. 
Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask your perspective on realizing the fact that sleep medicine clinics and, and sleep labs in general are, are, we are providing specialty care and we see patients by referral. Do you feel that there should be a push for organizations concerned with sleep medicine, such as uh, the American Thoracic Society or, or the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, of which you were past president, whether these organizations should make a push to reach uh, primary care clinicians who still serve as the first doctor that patients who have comorbidities like you described are going to call when they have issues and whether there is anything to be gained by actually not necessarily focusing on getting the message out to patients who clearly are the sufferers, but actually the, the clinicians who are the primary source of referrals to your program. Um, absolutely. And, and to some extent, we're already um, doing that in our, our program, reaching out to the primary care practices. But uh, you're right. Uh, professional organizations could also help was sending the message not only to um, primary care, which provides um, you know, many referrals to sleep clinics and laboratories, but also to patients in general, you know, letting them know that, that if they suspect that they might have a disorder such as sleep apnea, that they should uh, continue to seek um, uh, treatment, both um, diagnosis and, and treatment of their condition, and to ensure the, the public at large that the sleep clinics and laboratories have actually ramped up their efforts to uh, safeguard their, their practices to ensure that when patients do show up for either um, a clinic visit, whether it's, a, um, uh, it's an in-clinic visit or, or an in-laboratory sleep study, that uh, they would um, be protected as, as uh, much as possible to ensure their safety. Thank you. To address, I guess, the constraints that the pandemic uh, has necessarily placed on the traditional interactions between, you know, coming over to the sleep center, having a visit with the sleep clinicians, having the test kind of explained to them, seeing the facilities and preparing the patient for the visit uh, with, uh, with sleep physicians. What do you think has been the impact of all of that essentially having literally disappeared and being replaced by, by telehealth and telemedicine because so many institutions and so many national organizations have essentially been promoting uh, and popularizing that as the way to continue to, to get and, and even seek care. One good aspect about sleep medicine is that it can lend itself well for some diagnoses of sleep disorders to, to video visits. But some of the disorders um, that you know, might lend itself better to in-person visits are the more, more complicated uh, disorders. Um, to just give an example, um, for, for uh, sleep-related movement disorders or parasomnias, mm -hmm. it would be better to see those patients in person just to do a um, a comprehensive neurologic examination to make sure that there aren't other things that might be masquerading for these sleep disorders. So in a lot of patients, they can be managed through video visits. Is it optimal care? 
um, no compared to in-person visits. In-person visits, um, you would always be better. But given um, the situation that we're in right now with the pandemic, um, most clinics and laboratories have either a hybrid model where some patients come in for in-lab uh, evaluation, whereas um, others, you know, just strict, uh, strictly to um, to video visits. So right now it's 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 a hybrid. Um, I think one of the um, big areas that have been suffering is a, is a teaching perspective. Mm. So for fellows that come in for training in sleep medicine or medical students, or even graduate students that want to learn more about sleep research, um, that's one aspect that, that is really uh, falling short, uh, in my opinion, uh, during this pandemic, because um, there's in-person teaching is so much better at, at um, you conveying teaching points um, compared to, to video uh, learning. So I think the um, trainees have, have um, not had, have had it that great of an opportunity in, in learning compared to, to um, you know, pre-pandemic. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that perspective. That's, that's really, I, I think, especially your emphasis on the impact uh, on teaching and how people who are coming into the field are kind of exposed to it, because clearly this kind of initial experience sort of colors what you are going to be doing in future years. And, and I think that that probably has been a little underappreciated since uh, it was really all hands on deck and kind of dealing with this emergency situations and, and sleep labs and sleep centers literally have to change their policies and procedures overnight in order to be able to accommodate for the pandemic. Um, in your opinion, specifically with regard to your receptive comments about the effect on teaching and research, do you feel that these would kind of be long lasting? Do you think that there will be any repercussions because our current crop of trainees or people who are entering the field kind of had to go through this? I think, I think the training um, will be affected in the short term. Um, you know, the uh, problem is, is that, uh, as I mentioned, you, there's certain aspects that you can't really um, teach through video, uh, like a really hands-on um, uh, physical examination or neurologic examination for some of the sleep disorders. They don't convey it uh, well you know, to teaching uh, via video. So those type of things will, will be um, um, suffering suffering you know, for some of the um, uh, fellows and, and current trainees. They won't be, be getting the optimal learning experience that they might um, otherwise um, be able to have. But I do believe it, it's short-term that uh, hopefully if, if the pandemic um, uh, you know, it starts easing as it's been showing in the past couple of weeks as the vaccines start uh, to get um, more prevalent among you know all the population um, I think then you know the sleep laboratory sleep clinics would uh, gradually be um, having more 
uh, in-person mm -hmm. visits, which in turn would translate to, to better, better teaching opportunities for the uh, fellows and trainees. So more short term, and of course, with all of us striving to provide necessary education to our trainees, recovery is on the horizon as the pandemic begins to ease and vaccination becomes more widely available. Great. Absolutely. So coming back a little bit to what you had initially alluded to that, you know, people really are in, are in distress because of high levels of stress. And you did mention briefly about the relationship between stress and insomnia. So there have been uh, recent publications in the medical literature uh, specifically relating to the fact that insomnia in relationship to the pandemic appears to be a worldwide problem. And, and there are literally millions of people because millions of people have been affected by the pandemic in one way, shape or form that are struggling with it right now. Um, what would be your perspective, I think, or my understanding and the understanding of our membership on, do you feel that the pandemic precipitated a problem or increased a problem that was already there because insomnia is such a common worldwide disorder or that the pandemic and its cascading effects which are still being discovered on, on the mind and the brain and the body are contributing to that? Yes, I think that there, there might be two populations, uh, in my opinion, that are affected um, you know, regarding the insomnia. One are you know, individuals that, that have had sleep difficulties to begin with um, you know, throughout their, their life, but it hasn't really been in, uh, that much of an issue that it's been dominating their, their quality of life. Um, in that population, I think the pandemic has definitely increased their stress level. Um, and we know um, for issues such as you know, um, work, family, or work-life balance um, has been affected. There have, have been, um, you know, for those who have been able to, to work from home, you know, some of the stressors such as, you know, commute time and and the difficulties associated with commute have been, been eased. But in general, um, you know, this has obviously been um, uh, just a terrible you know, stressful time for, for most individuals. And, and that has exacerbated um, some of those individuals that have had you know, some intermittent um, uh, issues regarding their sleep. It has made their insomnia worse. Mm -hmm. And then there's another population that that we really don't have that much data on, but it does appear that there are some, some um, uh, you know, patients that, you know, haven't really had that much difficulty sleeping, you know, before the pandemic, but because of the pandemic, you know, it just, it just caused them to have a short-term insomnia, which um, because they have not necessarily, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, sought uh, treatment for it, um, it, it has escalated into a more chronic problem lasting, you know, a few months or longer. So I think those are the two types of populations that, that, um, that, that we've certainly seen in, in, in our uh, clinic, uh, patients that, you know, were, were um, having sort of intermittent um, sleep issues that weren't really a problem that were exacerbated with the 
pandemic and, and others that uh, where you know, the pandemic has just um, uh, caused them or um, in insomnia has been associated with, with the pandemic in patients, in individuals that ordinarily did not have, have uh, insomnia. Thank you for sharing that. You know, the, the other aspect of, of this, I know that we have been having essentially a, a very much a, a, a patient-focused discussion on, you know, this happened and now that led to this and, and our patients are, are suffering. But I, I think that there is another important aspect of this because the pandemic clearly has taken its toll on healthcare workers and clinicians who are caring for the patients who are suffering uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 virus. And there have been multiple reports published in, in the lay press and even some reports that have now started coming out in the medical literature about the effect of the pandemic on healthcare workers, which I think, uh, you know, healthcare workers clearly even prior to the pandemic um, had sleep problems and insomnia and high stress jobs which kind of increased, you know, several fold as a result of having to care for this overwhelming uh, surge of population of patients. Would you uh, speak a little bit about your perspective on sleep and sleep related health issues that have happened or will continue to happen in healthcare workers who are caring for patients suffering with COVID? Yes, that, that's obviously a very um, difficult uh, issue because on one hand, you have the healthcare workers that are on the front line that are impacted by uh, your, the patients that have um, the coronavirus and the need to, to um, you know, balance uh, the, the work they do with their life at homes, uh, which in turn, you know, obviously can take a toll on, on, their, on their sleep. And their stress levels. So, you know, and even aside from, from the frontline workers, you know, health workers in general, um, because of, of the um, stressors of their job situations, um, it has also uh, impacted their, their life and their sleep. And I think this is one area that um, I think their home institutions. Um, also, um, you know, their support systems uh, need to, to ramp up to, to help them. And I have seen, um, you know, uh, including, you know, our organization uh, really step up and offer, um, you know, opportunities that are focused on, on wellness and quality of life of their of their. Um, uh, healthcare workers, their faculty, their staff, uh, just to improve their their uh, daily lives, because um, you know they appreciate what what um, uh, the health workers are are um, you know doing for their their patients and and um, spending you know the the time and their efforts in very close management. Of, of their patients, no matter what you know, type of, of um, illness or specialty they're in, um, you know, these institutions and organizations have really, really stepped up. And, and hopefully you know, this will obviously continue 
because we do know that uh, just from the literature alone that that um, frontline health workers as well as health workers that have um, uh, worked with uh, patients that have the coronavirus, it does take a, a toll on their their health and 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 well-being. Um, so it is gratifying to see that that um, you know these institutions and organizations are are really stepping up to help them. Thank you. Yes, I, I think uh, that has certainly happened um, where there has seems to be a renewed focus on, on health and wellness and in providing resources to healthcare workers in order to be able to deal with this. Um, I know that earlier in our conversation, we had talked specifically about the impact of the pandemic and the restrictions on seeing patients face-to-face -face on the teaching and training of our students and trainees. But you know, there is this whole large population of undergraduates and, and colleges and universities across uh, this country and worldwide that have dramatically changed uh, things quite um, in order to respond to the pandemic. Uh, and I'm sure that you have noticed the impact of that on, on your undergraduate uh, interactions with students here at Stanford University uh, since there has uh, been postponements of commencement and uh, in fact, uh, the new students are probably not going to be on campus until several months later than they were expected to be. Would you be able to share with us your perspective on how you think would be the lingering effects of something like this on undergraduate education, which of course fuels medical school uh, entrance? Uh, and uh, what, if anything, can universities or institutions of higher learning do to be able to deal with this in an effective way? Yeah, it, that's a really difficult question because um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, the academic institutions um, need to obviously um, you know, take care of, of their um, students and, and protect them from the possibility of, of viral spread. Um, on the other hand, we do know that that um, the student population you know, can be uh, significantly impacted with the lack of the social connection and um, you know, the teaching itself you know, um, uh, may not as as be uh, may not be as good um, obviously as as in person learning. So it's a real tough balancing act, and. Um, it's really uncertain what will happen down the road in terms of what impact um, you know, this change will be to um, those students down the road in terms of, of um, their ability to, to um, not have these social interactions and compensate for it. So I think it's, um, it, it's one of these questions that is, is difficult and, and has, and each academic institution has to really carefully um, you know, weigh things. And, um, and I think it is one of those things that, that we've seen is a moving landscape, um, just because it really is dictated by how the pandemic is, is um, going you know, over any, any single point in time. Um, but I think that is something that, that um, psychologists, sociologists will be, you know, really carefully studying, you know, over time to see what impact um, 
know, this coronavirus has had on, on students and you know, what can be done in the future to, to you know, help these students. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that uh, thoughtful perspective. It's very true that the effects, in fact, remain largely unknown, but that we really need to focus on studying them and following them uh, in order to really fully understand the ramifications on the way that we currently learn and how we might learn in a post-pandemic uh, world. So many people say that in every crisis, there, there is opportunity. And, and clearly we are still going through a crisis that is taking lives every day. And as we discussed, going to be having significant long-term impact that may not necessarily be fully known for several years now. So if you were just kind of thinking about here is a crisis, what in your mind would be some innovations, either from the point of view of diagnosis or management, that could help us to better address the crisis here and now, and for what might be needed from us as sleep clinicians in the future? So I think due to the pandemic, um, because patients um, have been reluctant to come in for uh, in laboratory diagnostic testing, there has been um, a lot of interest in doing medical uh, care at home for the sleep perspective. So um, I, I've already seen evidence of this, but I envision down the road that there'll be more and more, um, both in the consumer wearable sector, but also in the medical device industry of having uh, more products that can be taken home by patients or shipped to them that will analyze their sleep and um, help to diagnose different sleep disorders and conditions over extended periods of time. I think you know, that, that uh, will just continue to be uh, developed and, and refined. And in addition with that, you know, they're pairing things, uh, for instance, like um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to make these devices um, be able to really accurately um, predict whether or not a patient has a given type of sleep disorder and also to be able to decide what the best type of treatment should be. So I, I see more of a shift down the road of, of these type of technologies being used in the home environment and really restricting uh, in laboratory sleep evaluation uh, for those that have very complicated cases. But even that, down the road, I, I think will eventually be, be distilled to the point where, where um, a device could be um, you know, sent to the patient's home that would be able to evaluate or at least uh, pinpoint you know, very complex types of sleep disorders as to what, what um, the possible diagnosis might be. Uh, so, so that's what I, you know, um, I'm already starting to see signs of, and, and I anticipate that within, um, you know, five to ten years, there there would be you know more of this type of, of shift. It was already happening pre-pandemic, but I think the pandemic um, has accelerated this uh, this technologic um, innovations uh, just because of the constraints of patients coming into the, the laboratory. 
Thank you. Yes, that that really was uh, very helpful in kind of understanding how there seems to be this paradigm shift in literally having a medical home at home. And we as clinicians then become interpreters of, of this data and try to figure out how best to actually apply it while utilizing these developing tools of machine thinking and artificial intelligence to help us. Do you feel, however, that in order for something like this to succeed, which is based upon this remote gathering of data, which is not happening necessarily in the traditional full night attended polysomnogram in which so much, uh, not just physiologic data, but also behavioral data is collected by technologists. Does that kind of move the needle away from sleep clinicians being the central figures in diagnosis and management? Does it move it to the point where people will just get a device, make their own diagnosis, buy their treatment off of Amazon or some other web service and just kind of be their own doctors? Um, I, I, I think that um, that step is one, I think that, that um, you know, needs to be debated over time, but um, I, I firmly believe that uh, even for states that we've done looking at, for instance, primary care, if primary care physicians, um, you would be interested in how much time is actually spent, um, you know, focused on, on sleep and sleep disorders. Even to this day, it's a very small um, mm. amount of time. That most of the time, um, what will happen is that once a sleep problem is identified by um, a, a primary care um, uh, clinician, that that uh, they would you know, tend to refer to a, a sleep clinical laboratory, um, unless it's something like um, uh, they feel that uh, you know, the patient might have like a short-term insomnia, for instance. I think most cases of uh, um, even disorders like obstructive sleep apnea would still be, you know, referred over to to sleep clinics and laboratories. Now, does that mean that you know down the road, if there is like a, a, let's say um, you know more sophisticated consumer wearable devices, you know, even in that case, what will happen is that that you know, would indicate to the individual that they might have a um, a sleep issue. And in that case, it would still um, you need to discuss that with their mm. with their um, care physician or or uh, a sleep specialist. So I think the processes that are being developed right now, um, even though a lot of them are sophisticated, it it won't um, replace that with mm. um, it won't replace uh, sleep. Uh, you know, the field of sleep medicine in terms of a sleep specialist being able to decide on the, on the best course. I think most of the devices and algorithms that I've seen being developed at, at this point in time are to be a complement you know, um, to the uh, sleep specialist, meaning that will help them guide towards a diagnosis. And the consumer devices are mainly designed to, to um, help the uh, user be aware um, of what type of sleep schedule they might have, you know, if they're getting adequate amounts of sleep, mm -hmm. if they get adequate 
amount of deep or light sleep and to, to indicate to them when they might need, need help, uh, meaning you know, seeing a um, paramedical physician or sleep specialist in terms of, of helping to determine whether or not they have a, um, a sleep uh, disorder. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we are almost at the end of our, of our time together. I wanted to ask you, I know we have covered such a wide array of topics and, and I personally, of course, have benefited so much from hearing your perspective on these really important questions that have arisen because of the pandemic that may in fact have forced us to address several longstanding issues in our field. Is there anything else that I did not ask you uh, that you think is important for our worldwide membership to kind of know about sleep and the pandemic um, and how this is going to affect our patients and our field? Um, the only thing is I think now there's more and more data being collected on the sleep of individuals and patients um, you know, during the pandemic. So I think that um, in the next few months that there will be uh, more and more articles written that will enable us to be able to um, have a clear idea of how how this pandemic is really affecting uh, sleep and its, its disorders. So I think that um, this will be a very um, uh, interesting um, few months to, to be able to, to um, you know, gain this new information and ultimately it will enable us to, to um, be able to, to you know, manage these uh, patients who have either sleep problems or, or true sleep disorders um, better. Mm. Thank you. Yes, uh, a whole host of new opportunities is on the horizon. Um, and hopefully uh, we as a field can uh, ride this wave and, and discover new things and help to make uh, diagnosis and treatment of our patients better. So thank you so much for participating uh, today, Dr. Kushida. On behalf of myself and the Assembly on Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology, thank you again so much for taking the time. Thank you.